You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. As you can see, we're starting a brand new series for the month of August. It's just called Stories. It's all about what happens when our culture's stories encounter the power of God's greater story. All right, so we're going to be looking at four unique Old Testament narratives. These are all new for me to be preaching through, never done these before. So, yeah, here we go. We're going to begin this week in Genesis chapter 13. Scripture reading is going to be in front of you. Here we go. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver, and gold, and from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk the length and breadth of a land for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, and there he built an altar to the Lord. That's the reading of God's word, Genesis 13, all as people said, amen. Yeah, here's my question. What story does your culture tell you about you? Hmm? What story does your culture tell you about you, about who you are? Any culture's core narrative, big story, tells its people who they are and how they're supposed to live, what they're supposed to live for. And and, and almost every culture's story could be, I think, for the sake of this conversation, placed along a spectrum with what we'll call conservative on one end and liberal on the other. Now, historically speaking, cultures that are more traditional and conservative have, over time, tended to be much more communitarian and collectivist, and that they give their members a story of sacrifice. That is, they tell their people, hey, your purpose is to make the us great. 
You do, you should do your duty to make your people, your tribe, your family as honorable as possible. If you go your own way, like you did your own thing, you'd only diminish the us. On the other end of the spectrum, what we'll call liberal cultures who have over time given their citizens a much different story. Not a story of sacrifice, but a story of the self. That is, they tell them their purpose is to maximize the self no matter what by escaping the demands of the group or the collective. If you live the story of duty to God, others, family, you would only diminish you. So... One culture story emphasizes the collective. Another culture story emphasizes the individual. Here's my question now. What do you do with the person like Abraham? What do you do with the person like Abraham? What do you do with the person like Abraham? Yeah, I know in this passage, he's still called Abram. He gets his name upgraded soon after this, okay? What's the difference? Quickly, Abram means father. Abraham means exalted father. So Abram means daddy. Abraham means big daddy. Okay, I'll stick with the big daddy name for the moment. Abraham, so we don't get it confused. Yes, what do you do with the person like Abraham who doesn't fit in any culture's story? Because on one hand, Abraham is from a collectivist culture. Uh, In his day, you would do what your father did. You'd worship who your father worshiped. And when you died, you'd be buried where your father was buried. But Abraham, if you know his story, he left all of that family, religion to become something more. He lived like a unique individual with a new faith system. That sounds pretty progressive. Individualistic, on the other hand, as an individual, Abraham didn't just live by his gut. He didn't just go by his feelings. He didn't just follow his heart, as every Disney movie will tell you to do. No, he lived instead by God's word to him. That sounds pretty conservative. So, was Abraham a traditionalist who lived by duty, or was he a free individual who lived by choice? And the answer is yes and no. He was a cultural anomaly. So much so. Think about it. He became the founder of not just one, not just two, but three worlds, three of the world's main faith systems. How did he do that? How did Abraham live out a new kind of story altogether? I want to try to answer that question by asking and answering three questions of this passage to see how Abraham escaped the trap of every culture story, we have to answer three questions first. The first question is not about him, actually, but about the other character in our story. His name is Lot, Abraham's nephew. So let's ask this first question then. Well, what did Lot think that he saw? What did Lot think that he saw who, okay, first, was Lot. It's a bit of backstory here. Genesis 12, the previous chapter, God had called Abraham to leave his father's house and land and go to a place, God said, you'll be shown later, <laughs> later. So you know a little bit about what that's like. It's kind of like when you're going off on a road trip and you, you aim the car somewhere and you turn on a GPS and your wife or your, your husband asks you, where are you going? And you're like, I don't know, I'm gonna get the location later. Right, you, but you go anyway now. 
Abraham did a version of that. He obeyed God and he took with him his wife, his business, and a specific family member, the blessed nephew Lot. Now, while they're living like nomads in the ancient Near East, Abraham's and Lot's business partnership blew up. It got big beyond their wildest dreams. They hit the big time and got their bag, as the kids say. Verse 2, Abraham, it said, had become very, not just wealthy, but very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And Lot, of course, flourished too. It said he was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Oh, but below the surface, things weren't quite right out in the C-suite. Verse 7, and quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. In response, Abraham, we read, offered Lot a choice. Hey, you pick where you want to go. Pick where you want to settle. There's a watered spot over here, an unwatered over there. You pick one, I'll take the other. And when faced... With this choice, the text tells us something fascinating psychologically and emotionally, spiritually even, about Lot and about all of us. Verse 10, it says, He looked around and Lot saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. What does Lot see? Three things. First, he sees economic opportunity, of course. The Jordan was, it says, well-watered. Archaeologists have confirmed evidence of an ancient irrigation system. Lot is quite literally choosing, yes, the place where the grass was greener. Second, he sees also civilization and that it was like Egypt. It's full of cities, full of cultural uh, possibilities. No more living out in the desert, you know, in a tent like old Uncle Abe. No, I mean, they got movies. They've got the plays. They've got restaurants down there like Egypt. Oh, but most of all, we're told Lot thought he saw one thing. The land below him, it says, was like the garden of the Lord. What's going on in Lot's heart? The great scholar, Robert Alter, expert in Hebrew narrative at Berkeley, tells us this. He said, quote, what is significantly, significant thematically is that the point of view of the entire clause is Lot's. Lot sees the plane in hyperbolic terms, likening it to the garden of the Lord, presumably Eden. In other words, we're being told not how the land really looked. Oh, but how Lot's heart encountered it. How Lot's heart saw. In other words, when Lot sees the plain below, full of water, full of cities, he doesn't just see opportunity. He sees Eden. He sees the possibility of paradise regained what he ima- when he imagines what life down there is like. He sees a place where all His financial and personal and cultural dreams can come true. What's this getting at? Three examples quickly. First of all, Madonna. Yes, Madonna. Just who you were expecting to hear from today. Yes, that's why you came. A few years ago, she said this about her career. She said, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove 
that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Can you hear it? She's saying pursuing success is like going after the garden of the Lord. Second, and this is a classic illustration, Harold Abrams, the Olympian runner in the best picture film, Chariots of Fire, noted his struggle with sprinting. He said this, contentment, I'm 24 and never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that quarter when I run, four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence, but will I? Can you hear it? He's saying chasing winning is like going after the garden of the Lord. And third of all, of course, Jay-Z, yes. He said, truth is, you don't need some external demon to take control of you to turn you into a raging, money-obsessed sociopath. You only need to let loose the demons you already have inside of you. Money and power don't change you. They just further expose your true self. Yeah, let's put all of this together. What are they saying? They're saying humans... We're a lot like Lot. We're all chasing something that seems like the garden of the Lord to us. And if we're not careful, chasing that thing can ruin us. Now, when Madonna, Harold Abrams, Jay-Z, and the book of Genesis all say the same thing, we might want to start paying attention. When you look at that thing in your life, out into the valley of your future, what do you see? Is it just a great opportunity? Is it just providing for you and your family? Is it just sales or just likes or just clicks? Or are those things like the garden of the Lord back to paradise where humanity's heart was content? See, when Lot looked at the land, what did he see? A place like Madonna said, to justify his existence become somebody. Money wasn't just money to Lot. It was his master. And you could see that from the self-centeredness, from the quarreling, the arguing, the eventual settling down outside the land of Canaan into the city of Sodom, where his own faith took a backseat to his culture. Yes, he's raised with faith in the one true God, in Uncle Abe's tent and house. But when he goes out on his own and he chooses to live like this, his faith became more or less irrelevant. But God, God had told Abraham and his family, live for me. Lot saw the valley. His heart said to him, live for yourself. And the reason Lot's heart, let me tell you, fell apart when he got what he wished for is because Lot didn't really want the garden of God. He only wanted something like the garden of the gods, of God. In other words, what he really wanted was the garden without God. Second question, that's what Lot saw. Well, okay, if that's what Lot thought he saw, well, what, second question, what did Abraham see? What did Abraham, in fact, see? Lot saw this one thing, Abraham didn't. This is the contrast we're being shown here. What did Abraham see? Well, to get to that, let's look at the position Abraham finds himself in here. He is faced immediately with three choices. First, should he, A, be loyal to his family? Like, in other words, is Abraham going to live by a collectivist standard? Be loyal to his family? Do his duty? Or second, 
Is he more of an individualist? B, should he be loyal to his career like most Americans? Put work first, making money first. Is his business first? Or C, should he be loyal to the call of God who had told him to stay in this land? In the end, as we'll see, Abraham got all three by putting the call of God first. And he started to do that by doing something in this passage he's got every right not to do in a patriarchal culture. In that day, Abraham is, yes, the head of his clan, head of his tribe. He was the elder. Lot was the younger. Abraham had every right, culturally speaking, to tell Lot where to go, tell Lot which land to take. He could have said, hey, I'll take the best. You take the crust over, you know, leftover, dried out bits on the counter, nephew. (laughs) But instead he humbled himself allowed his nephew to choose first and stayed loyal and connected to his family. It's remarkable because he knew that if he remained at least somewhere in Canaan, somewhere in the promised land, he would be remaining faithful to the call. He knew even if it was initially sure to his financial detriment, God could get him on the backside. He didn't say, I'm going to leave the land totally. That would have violated God's call. Nor did he say, I'm just going to crush my family in a never-ending quest to get ahead. Because he put the call of God first. He kept his family and succeeded financially. Let me ask you, when it comes to all this stuff, what do you base your decisions on? Is it maximizing profits, finding success above all, or is it the call of God, the word of God? Uh, Years ago, a few years ago, when Carrie and I uh, were asked to come back to Austin, we'd been here, moved away to Nashville, come back to this church to consider pastoring. Uh, We had to look at ourselves with four kids now and ask, what's most important to us? Is it being secure financially? Or is it following the call of God? So we said yes to that. C, uh-oh. And so we sold the house we had just bought in Nashville uh, right before the market crash of 2008. Some of you are still recovering from that. And we sold it a couple of years later in the abysmal market of 2010. And we lost everything. We moved to Austin completely broke. Again, four kids, five and under in tow. Trusted God to try to, along with a lot of others here, turn a church around and believe for a place that was struggling and hurting. And God did it. He did a miracle here at Mosaic and we have never, ever regretted it. Praise God. Except for a few days back in 2020. But that's a different sermon. (laughs) And story, full disclosure. Now I share that not to say I'm a hero, we're a hero, but only this, that at some point in anyone's life who says, yeah, I want to follow God. Yeah, I want to follow Christ. It's going to be asked of you. On what basis do you make your life's decisions? On what basis, for example, do you date someone? What basis do you marry someone? Do you look at other person and think, well, whoo, look at those muscles. Lord, he's swole. He look on swole patrol. He looks just like the garden of God. Man, she has got it. Woo! Man, well watered head to toe. You know what I'm saying? Fulfill my every desire. On what basis? Do you organize your finances? Is there space for God's word to tell you, which it does, to be generous, to give money to ministry and the poor? Lot 
unlike Abraham, went after the world first. And he ended up, in the end, literally, with a handful of salt slipping through his fingers. Abraham kept his family. Lot lost his. Because Abraham put his faith first, he keeps his family and his flocks. And do you know how he did it? He did it because he saw, here it is, something different than Lot saw. Hebrews 11, speaking years later of Abraham's motive in the matter, says this, verse 8. Here's why he did it. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place, he would later receive his inheritance. He obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him in the same promise. Here's how he did it. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So Lot, you see, Lot looked down in the valley and saw the city of Sodom and its story of cultural power. It's of lust, of progress, perhaps. And he thought that would satisfy him. Oh, but Abraham didn't look down. He looked forward, forward to a different kind of city based on the person and the heart and the nature, the character and the goodness and the faithfulness, the largeness of the one true God. How can we tell if we have made that same switch from the city of man to the city of God? How can we tell if we've switched foundations? Here's one litmus test the passage gives us. It's by looking at what we do with our failures our failures. Back to the beginning of the story. Quickly, there was a crucial detail there. Verse 3, it says, Abraham went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had, here's the word, first built an altar. Why does Abraham come back to a place he's been before? Well, he had to come back because he had left, he had utterly failed in the previous chapter. After receiving the call of God to go to Canaan, first half of chapter 12, Abraham left that land when a famine hit immediately in the second half of chapter 12, which just shows us how the call of God works. I mean, do you want to live a great life like Abraham? I do, a life which escapes the downward trajectory of every culture's narrative. Well, if we want to do that, we're going to have to come face to face with the litmus test of some kind of famine, some kind of lack, some kind of things gone wrong. What will you do when things don't look like they're going right? Will we abandon God's word to us? Abraham said at first, sure, I'll follow you, God. Immediately famine hits, hits he flees to Egypt and gives his wife to Pharaoh. That's weird, a different sermon. Okay. Abraham, in other words, totally fails. But now he's come back. He's repented revisiting the altar of his past. After his failure in 12, he breaks through here in 13. What do you do with your failures? I've known people, maybe you have too, and absolute tragedy hits them. They stay faithful to God, church, family, the things they've said are most important. Like even if a, a child has died or, or a spouse has left them, a uh, business failed, they, they stood strong, though it seemed impossible. And yet sometimes those same people, I've seen them, though they stood strong in that impossible trial, they walked away from God, family, 
and faith for something smaller, seemingly some small secret sin. They bounce back from unimaginable tragedy only to be taken down by something that seems smaller. Why? It's because their foundation was only partially built on the city of God. Some corner of their life was still paying the rent check down in the city of man. Abraham came back. Lot never did until his own life was shattered. So third question, then how can we, oh, avoid living like Lot and live more here like Abraham by the call of God and not just by our own failures at the end of the narrative. Here's the conclusion. Verse 14 is fascinating. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, chosen the best land, gone down in the valley, he said, look around from where you are, son, to the north and the south, east and the west, four directions, all the land that you see, I'll give to you and your offspring forever. God here, here's the picture, has brought Abraham up to a high point. There is an actual lookout point there between Bethel and Ai. And God said, Abraham, look around. Everything you see will one day be yours. Everywhere the light touches Simba. It's all your kingdom. Just kidding. Does this so sound familiar? Does this sound like something that happened not just to the Lion King? Yeah, something similar happened. To the king of kings. Matthew 4, 8. We're told centuries later. <clears throat> New Testament. Gospel of Matthew. Satan himself, the devil, takes Jesus while Jesus is in the middle of a 40-day fast up to a high point. And so the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the same thing. All the kings of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. God told Abraham if you follow me, I'll give you everything that's mine. Satan told Jesus, if you follow me, I'll give you everything that's already yours. Jesus, of course, wisely declined and walked down from that high place into the valley of human existence, the valley of the shadow of death of this life, and he died for all of us. Why? He did it so that we could have that forever home in the heart of God that Abraham looked forward to. He did it to rescue all of us lots from every valley near Sodom we get trapped in. And us Abrahams from even the Egypts we want to escape to. Jesus, the one with the highest place in heaven. And took the lowest place in this earth, the one who will refashion this world into a, a new earth, a paradise reimagined. Revelation says this time it won't just be a garden. No, it'll be like a, like a garden city. Paradise, civilization, intertwined. In other words, everything Lot wanted without God. Jesus says you can have, you will have one day forever if you'll trust in me. And I'll give you my spirit and my people now to give you a bit of a foretaste. Jesus did all of this because he loves you. Because he just loves you. And he loves us. He loves people. And hear me, it's when affection for him overwhelms and overtakes you. Now you can say no to whatever culture's story tries to trap you today. Can you see him standing in a high place, then going down, into the low place.
to give you and me a forever place with him. Last thought, Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers said this. He said, it is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. At least, it is very seldom that this is done by the instrumentality of reasoning or by the force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. The boy who ceases at length to be a slave to his appetite does so because a more mature taste has brought it into subordination. The young man may cease to idolize sensual pleasure, but it's because the idol of wealth has gotten the ascendancy. So the love of money can cast out the love of sloth. However, even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart if it's drawn to the world of ideology and politics. And he's now lorded over by a love of power and moral superiority. But there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. The heart's desire for an ultimate object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. My prayer for us is that maybe even in this moment, that expulsive power of affection for Christ would enable us to come free, as the proverb put it, from the fowler's snare of whatever trap you may find yourself in today. Lord, would you come now in this moment and meet us? I thank you for every heart, every life, every soul that's here. Lord, would you empower us, and even as a church, to escape the traps of stories cultures want to put on us and imprison us in the story that we only live for ourselves we can be whatever we want to be that we can uh, just live for ourselves endlessly or the stories of your duty to a false thing a false idol from a culture or family we need help with this we can live more like abraham by seeing what you've done for us saying no to all of that because you said yes to your father and to us We love you today. Would your loving, loving, expulsive power come in, flood our hearts, meet us here in a fresh way today, this week. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.